Hey, welcome to night school. Got pretty much no sleep last night. A friend of mine got a hold of me today and was like, I was in bed and they were like, I'm in your neighborhood and I got your money. They'd owed me some money and that'll get you out of bed. I'm in your neighborhood and I got your money. I really wish I was a loan shark. You know, reading about the mafia all these years, I'll read about gambling, I'll, I'll read about scams, construction rackets, and I never think like, oh, I wish I was doing that. But I'll read about loan sharking and I'm like, that sounds great. You just lend money out to people, they pay you interest, they slowly pay back the principal. You don't even have to threaten them with bodily harm. That's a big myth about the mafia is obviously it's implied. But it's not like loan sharks lend money out and are constantly threatening people, even when they're late. Loan sharks actually like it when people are late on their payments or can't pay because it usually means they borrow more money. And one of the big incentives for people to pay mafia members back on loans to pay the interest and everything, the weekly VIG, as they call it, is that that's their social circle. There's a heavy social incentive because usually the people that borrow money from a mafia guy are part of the same community. They're part of this subculture, which is why they're borrowing from a mafia member. And so not paying that guy could result in you being excommunicated. Yeah, they do threaten people. They do beat people up. But there's a heavy social incentive where... If you don't pay the mafia member, who's sort of a, an upper class, I mean, as far as that subculture goes, a made member of the mafia is a higher class and everybody knows it. And by not paying them, your own standing in that social circle falls, you know, because there, there's such a heavy, it's like a cult, you know, where it's like everybody who lives in those communities, all of the relatives and friends and people who believe in that way of living you know you have to if you're standing if you lose standing with the mafia it's like you lose a certain amount of social standing too so there's a heavy incentive to pay the interest based on that just for social reasons and then occasionally you get threatened with bodily harm because in that subculture the mafia is like a government it's their own form of government. And just like when you borrow money from a bank, you know, when you get a loan, yeah, the bank isn't going to hurt you. They're not going to break your legs, but they can ruin your life if you don't pay it. You know, you can easily ruin your life if you don't pay back a loan from a bank. And so in some ways, it's like the mafia is just a more direct version of that with a much more communal subcultural component. But I could see myself enjoying that, just loaning money out and taking it in with just a, a vague threat of bodily harm. You don't even need to say it most of the time. But anyway, uh, thinking a lot about identity, one of the recurring topics on here is identity. One of the most often discussed ideas in our culture not that that's really new, but as identity is mutated, as it's changed, 
it seems to be what people are most obsessed with. And I think one of the reasons is that people don't have a firm sense of identity. You know, because I think about growing up where everybody was very identity focused, especially as kids and teens. Because, you know, think about my sister was seven years older. And so she got into grunge and heavy music around 1992, 93, right as all of that was picking up. And I look back on that and I'm like, that was such a great time for me to be a kid. You know, because somebody who was in my position, being in like first and second grade, when grunge and everything was at its peak, you would think, oh, you were just a little too young. Oh, it's so sad. You were just a little too young. Because my sister, she saw Nirvana Live. She saw Pearl Jam, Soul Asylum. You know, she saw all the bands of the era live and got to experience that as it happened in the Seattle area. You know, I grew up in a suburb of Seattle. But like, I don't feel like I missed out on that because that stuff isn't my thing. But I really enjoyed it by proxy through my sister, through her friends, because they were completely obsessed with that stuff. Like their entire lives from like 1992 to 1994 revolved entirely around music, MTV, and everything adjacent to that. And they let me hang out with them. Like my sister had male friends who were awesome. Like they were just, you know, stoners, skateboarders, guys who just were really into music. And uh, they would just, they gravitated toward me. Like they would come over to our house and they would just hang out with me and they would babysit me and take me places. And they seemed so cool. They, they were cool. They were really cool. And they were cool to me. And, you know, that's so important, too, is to be schooled. To be schooled. It is, though. You know, I was talking, I think, last night or in one of the many episodes lately about, you know, my friends, when they started skateboarding at the local skate park, how these guys who were like 19, 20, 21 took them under their wing and would take them to parties, would tell them about girls. They would just hang out with them. And it was understood that my friends were younger. But these guys were just like, hey, you know, you guys are cool. You guys are the right kind of kids. Hang out with us. And then my friends kind of did that a little bit with the younger kids, although things were changing quite a bit. You know, because even somebody who was four, you know, three or four years younger than we were, they were something different than us. You know, it was just with technology changing so rapidly, it was just, there was a big difference there. Like, I remember remember my friend Steve, who was a really great skateboarder, one of my best friends in high school, and he was telling me, and he, he was very old school, like Steve was just, you know, just a very pure, he was of the earth, is, is what he was like. His parents were Christian Republicans. But his dad was like obsessed with Van Halen for some reason and climb mountains. He was this outdoorsy nature guy. Like you would think that he was a hippie or something, but you'd go over to their house and they would have Sean Hannity's book on their table and they went to church and everything. It was an interesting family for that reason and that they were very much environmentalists. Kind of what I was talking about with my dad where, you know, and Ted Kaczynski, (laughs) where it's like you're given this idea that 
environmentalism is this leftist cause that being outdoorsy in a non-destructive way, like going hiking, going mountain climbing, believing in conservation of nature. Like we have this idea that that is this leftist cause. And to be fair, the left has been much more vocal about that. They put a lot more resources toward that, it seems. But you have this idea, like just based on our culture that like conservatives don't care about that at all. And like my dad is conservative in many ways. He's an environmentalist. And I'm thinking about my friend Steve's parents, where it's like Christian Republican Bush supporters. They listen to Rush Limbaugh. They have Sean Hannity's book. But strong believers in environmentalism. People who believe in getting out and getting into nature and preserving it and respecting it. But anyway, my friend Steve, like I remember him saying to me once he's like man the kids at the skate park because like i would go there and i knew all of them like i knew all the little kids i knew all the older guys i I, of course knew all my friends it turns out i knew did you know that i knew my friends (laughs) some people don't man some people don't know their friends but uh, my friend steve was like he's like man it's crazy now like these kids like the the, these younger kids like they come to the skate park with their ipods and they show me like the album art on the screen and uh, it was just a change. Like even the, even something like that was a significant change. That like none of my friends had iPods, even though they were around. Like some of them probably did, but it was like we would go to high school and we had Discmen, Discmen. We each had a Discman, but that was how we were. You know, we we listened to CDs in our Discman at school. None of us had iPods or anything like that that I can remember. And so these little kids would come to the skate park with their iPods and be like, look at, look at the album art. And I remember like Steve just being like, I couldn't believe it. It's like, it's, it's like this little square on a screen. You know, that's what they're seeing. Like that's their experience with album art now is just this little square on a screen, like a thumbnail. And so even just something like, and you think about the role that music played in skateboarding too. You know, you think about how heavily associated music was with skateboarding. And that was a big component for my friends and the older guys. Like choosing your song for a skate video. Like a bunch of my friends and guys I knew were in skate videos. And just choosing your song. Like there was a video that came out. I don't know what year. But it was a big deal because like my the older guys who hung around, hung around my friends were in it. And it was called Two Minutes to Midnight. The name of the escape video was Two Minutes to Midnight, like the Iron Maiden song. And like one of the guys that we knew, you know, he skated to Danzig Mother in the video. So there was a lot of metal, a lot of punk and that kind of thing. And it was crucial. Like if a friend of mine was in a skate video, he put a lot of thought into which song he skated to. It's like a ballerina or an ice skater. And I'm not even kidding. You know, it's, it's important. But with this younger generation of kids, you just noticed that that meant something different from them. It meant something different for them. Like having iPods, downloading music, seeing album art as a little thumbnail on your iPod. It was just a completely different experience for them. But they still took those kids under their wing if they were cool and that kind of thing. And that's kind of how it was for me, you know, when I was a kid where it's like my sister's male friends were just like, oh, Eric's cool. So they would play video games with me. 
I still remember the day that <laughs> I still remember the day that uh, that Sublime self-titled album came out, the one with the tattoo on his back. Because my sister had this friend who would always hang out with me, and he had lent me his Operation Ivy CD. They were all really into that band, Operation Ivy. And I, I heard it. I was in like fourth grade or something, fifth grade, I think fourth grade. And they were like, listen to this, dude. Hey, hey, Eric, listen to this. And of course, I'd never heard anything like that. You know, now it's like what, ska punk or something? But that was a cult band to them. To like teenagers in the suburbs in the mid-90s, a band like Operation Ivy was a cult band to them. And they played me rancid and things like that. But then I still remember like one of them coming to the house, the same guy who had lent me his Operation Ivy CD. And he's like, dude, Eric, you got to hear this. This just came out today. And my sister wasn't even home because her friends would just come over. It was one of those sorts of deals. Like I like when I was a teenager, it wasn't like that. Like my friends didn't just come over to the house. And that's probably a, has more to do with me. I don't like people just to drop by. But uh, my sister, when she was a teenager, it was just like her friends would just be coming by the house all the time. She didn't even have to be there. They would come and they would have these long, deep conversations with my mom about their lives. It was crazy. Uh, they would like sit on a bar stool and my mom would just like give them a soda and they would just tell my mom about their parents and about their step parents and their <laughs> just their entire lives. And uh, they would end up hanging out with me. And, and so he, he brings this Sublime CD in and he's like, this just came out today, dude. But uh, it was that sort of thing where these guys, they just, they wanted to include me. And I'm glad that I didn't have to be invested in it. Like, I'm glad that I got to experience that part of life without actually being into it myself. Because I liked all of it. Because the thing was, too, you could understand that, like... Even though I was a little kid, I was like seven, eight, nine years old when a lot of that music was coming out, like grunge, for example. Of course, they were into they were into everything that was big at the time, like Nine Inch Nails, Ministry. They were into all that stuff, too. Metallica, Guns N' Roses, but very into grunge, of course. Everything kind of revolved around grunge. But as a kid, like I could understand it. It wasn't just that I thought it was cool that they were into it. It wasn't just like, oh, that's what the older kids are into. That's what I'm, I, I, I want to be like them. It was that they could play me a grunge album and I could be like, even though it, I wasn't able to differentiate anything in what I was hearing. Like you hear a, a, a CD and you don't know, you, you can barely know, tell what the guitar is or you certainly can't hear the bass. It just sounds like an organism. It sounds like this like complete organism and you have no concept of how that's even made. But you could still hear a riff and be like, that's a good riff or that's catchy. And so that's how I felt as a kid, where I was like, I was able to actually enjoy it. And for the same reasons that nowadays, like boomer parents, as they call them, I don't I try not to call them that boomer, baby boomer. But uh, boomer parents today are now realizing like, oh, you know, that that grunge stuff. Oh, dude, I, I just, I'm realizing that uh, Nirvana was actually a good band. At the time, these baby boomers, like their Gen X kids were getting into Nirvana and different music, and they were just like, oh, it's just that kid stuff. I don't understand it. But then 20 years later, they can hear Nirvana on the radio, on Spotify probably, and be like, you know what? There was really something to that Nirvana band. 
because you can understand what made it good. Like, even if you're not into it, like I'm not into Nirvana, but I can understand what made it good. And so baby boomer parents now understand that and listen to Nirvana. They don't do that with new metal. Like a baby boomer parent today isn't going to be like, oh, I'm going to go listen back to what my kid was into in the late 90s, early 2000s. Oh, you know, Limp Bizkit, there really was something to them, you know. Maybe there are some exceptional cases. But that's the interesting thing about new metal is it aside from just people who want to, you know, revisit it for nostalgic reasons or uh, Zomers, Generation Zomers, who want to role play as if they were alive during the early 2000s or relevant during the 2000s. Aside from people doing that, there's very few people like older generations who are going to look back at new metal and be like, you know, there was really something to that new metal thing, which is actually cool. It's cool that new metal is something that like parents still can't like. Like parents can go back and listen to grunge and be like, you know what? Pearl Jam is amazing. They can't go back and listen to Slipknot and be like, oh my God, Slipknot, they're actually really good. It's just not going to happen. But uh, it's the same thing on the other end of the spectrum where like as a little kid, like as a little kid, you didn't necessarily care about music, but that music, you could understand why it was good, even though you were younger than the average listener. And so that's how I felt. It wasn't like I invested in all that music. But it was around me all the time, and I understood that it was good on its own, you know, for its own reason, for its own merit. But identity was such a core part of those kids. You know, like my sister and her friends, like forming an identity around those interests, it was very organic because it's what their peers were into, it's what they were seeing in music. But it was this very organic process. Like, they weren't really trying to embody anything except for the fact that I'm into this stuff and the attitudes reflected in that stuff. And, I mean, the same was true for me when I became a teenager, too. You know, the difference is is that the Internet was around. Like, I got the Internet as a teenager, and I was part of the first generation of teenagers to have access to the Internet. But as I've said before... It was a means to an end where you found out more about interests you already had in the flesh. Like the very first time I ever actually used the internet, like I searched the internet for something, it was over at this family friend's house. They were in their 30s and worked for an educational software company. First people I ever knew to have a laptop, first people I ever knew to have the internet. And so if they would have a dinner party, like I had no business participating in that. I still don't still don't have any business participating in a dinner party. So they would just set me up on their computer and just be like, this is the internet. Do you click on this, do this. And you would very gingerly, you know, you'd move your hands very slowly and sensitively, not wanting to, you didn't know what you were doing. You didn't know what to click on. You didn't know how things worked. But that very first time I was ever just, they sat me down and allowed me to just search the internet. And I looked up custom Star Wars figures because I was like 11 years old. But uh, it was a way to, to find out more information about things you were already interested in. And of course, that produced more leads. But there wasn't that information available. Like information wasn't centralized. Like I've said before, 
you were lucky if you could find out a band's entire discography easily. Like Discogs wasn't a website. There weren't all of these databases cataloging not just every release a band has ever done, but every variation of that release. You know, that just didn't exist that I remember. Like maybe a fan site would do it. But even then, fan sites were a mess. So it was, even though, you know, yeah, I was on this cusp. I'm not going to pretend that I was around when tape trading was big and you had to order from catalogs and all that. I experienced a little bit of that, the tail end of that. But I was kind of on this cusp where it's like the internet gave you greater access to things. Like I could order CDs online. I could order band shirts online. I could find more information. I could find out about new, new bands, other bands. It's not that I wasn't learning about new things from the internet, but I was pursuing an interest that was already well-established in the flesh. My identity was based around my material experience. You know, there was no way to form an identity based on the internet at all. You couldn't do that. Like, not even nerds were doing that. Like, nowadays you see kids, and they're wearing, like, t-shirts with memes on them. Being a gamer is this identity. Like, I was friends with gamers... But they were pretty much just nerds who love video games. They didn't really have an identity surrounding it. They didn't have Funko Pop dolls. They just played video games. There really wasn't even that much merchandise or anything like that. Like at best, maybe a video game company would make a, uh, you know, like some sort of promotional t-shirt. But it's not like you could just buy that. So it's like my friends who were nerdy... They love video games and spent most of their time playing video games. But there really wasn't any more to it than that. They didn't call themselves gamers. They didn't think of themselves that way. And when they got online, it was just to read like strategy guides for video games. You know, that's pretty much it. Maybe look at fan art or something, but there wasn't a lot more to it. So the internet, it was, you know, you were getting more information about what you were already interested in. And yeah, that provided more leads. You learned something. You could communicate with other people who shared that interest. So that's a big deal. You know, that, that was different than what previous generations had experienced. But it was still, your identity was formed around the things you interacted with in the flesh. And then, just like those kids coming to the skate park with their iPods, and my friends being like, whoa, this is different. That's kind of how it was when the internet stopped being a means to an end and became an end unto itself. Like when, when people, what people were consuming online was intended only for the internet. It wasn't just giving you resources. Like it wasn't just my initial experience with the internet, which is that this gives me a greater spectrum of resources related to the things that I'm already interested in. Instead, it was everything is contained within this. And the identities soon reflected that. Where the idea of like my sister and her friends, just their entire lives hinged around going to the record store. Like there was this little record store in Kirkland. It was the only record store in Kirkland. They had the same... The owner had a few of them. He had a couple in Seattle. It was called Easy Street. I think they still have one in Seattle, or they did up until recently. But Easy Street, 
had one record store in Kirkland, which is kind of weird. They only had one. But it was run by a guy named Kim. First hu- first male human being I ever met named Kim, which I always thought was weird. And you think about like Soundgarden had a guy named Kim. What is it with music and Kim? What is it with Seattle, the Seattle music scene and Kim? But Kim ran this record store. He was there every day. His daughter worked there. And just to describe him, he was, you know, maybe late 40s, early 50s. He had curly gray hair pulled back into a ponytail, like a thin black mustache and an earring. And he had been Queensryche's first manager because Queensryche is from my area. Queensryche came from, uh, I think they're from Bellevue. Like where I grew up is basically a triangle of towns like Kirkland, Redmond, and Bellevue. And they all run into each other. And Nintendo and uh, Microsoft were based in Redmond. And Queensryche, I believe, was from Bellevue. I think they were actually from, there's a road connecting Redmond and Bellevue called Bell Red Road. Very creative. And I believe that they got their start like hanging out at a record store on Bell Red Road, but somehow they got in touch with Kim, this guy, and he was Queensryche's first manager. That was always his claim to fame is that, and apparently he was a big cokehead, I later heard. But he was a great guy. Like that's the thing is that, his record store, being the only record store in Kirkland, it was very much this community. And I don't mean that in like a scene sense, where there was like a bunch of people meeting each other there. It was just a hub, I guess would be the better way to put it. Like he sold concert tickets. You know, he, he you know had a variety of music right at that peak of the quote unquote Seattle music scene. So it's like my family got to know him. Not like we were personal friends who hung out outside of his record store, but it's like we could go to his record store and he knew my mom, my sister, me. Like in third grade, I went there and I was buying a Green Day CD. And he, uh, I went up to go pay for it and it was a new one. And he goes, listen, go over to the used section and you're going to find a copy of that there for half the price. He's like, I'm not going to let you pay for a brand new one. He was looking out for the kids. He was like, go over to the used section, and we got the same one. So he wasn't trying to rip off the kids. He was a good guy. You know, people would go to him to find out, like, what bands are coming to town, what music is coming out, like, what bands are gaining traction. You know, he was just a source of information and a well-connected guy. And, you know, the Queensryche thing was funny because Queensryche wasn't cooled by that point. Like I had a cousin, kind of a cousin through marriage who was uh, in college at the time. And when he would come and visit, his favorite band was Queensryche. And he wasn't a metalhead or anything, which is funny. Like he was just like a pretty straight-laced guy who originally came from the Midwest. And he would come stay with us. And his favorite band was Queensryche and everybody would make fun of him. My sister and her friends would always make fun of him because like 80s metal was no longer cool. But, uh, and you, I mean, the Seattle, Seattle metal is an interesting thing. Like there are definitely a few good bands for sure. Eighties bands, but it never really had that strong of a presence. Like some of the better bands like Queensryche. I love the first Queensryche EP, you know, metal church is not from Seattle, but they're actually from this area. And I, I knew their manager. My girlfriend worked at the college here and there was this old dude 
who had been in a, like a severe motorcycle accident and they reconstructed his face and you would never know, but everybody said like, he has a different face now. Like he looks like an entirely different person, but he was a Harley Davidson guy, old dude. And he would have parties. Like he would invite all of the staff at the school for these big parties at his house. And it turned out he was metal church's manager. Like they're from Aberdeen, the same town Kirk Corbrain, Kirk Corbrain is from, and uh, this guy Steve, he was uh, Queens, or he was Metal Church's manager because he grew up with the, like like they they were younger than him, but he, I think he, like his best friend was one of the, one of their brothers or something. And as he explained it, he was like basically being their manager just means we own all their equipment so they can't sell it for drugs. <laughs> That's what he said. He's like basically so that they can't sell all their equipment for heroin. We own their equipment. And basically look after them. But I knew something was up because like we went to a party at his house and I went in his living room and he had like Queensryche or sorry, I keep confusing him. He had metal church LPs and just posters and stuff all over the living room and being into metal and like nobody else there was into that kind of thing. I was just like, what's up with this? And he goes, oh, I'm their manager. And I was like, whoa. And like looking at his CD collection, which was on display he wasn't into metal or anything. It's like there were like there was like Steppenwolf and there was just you know stuff like that. It's like he was obviously into hard rock. He was a Harley Davidson guy, but then met, he had just all this metal church stuff. And I think one of the metal church guys was in the Trans Siberian Orchestra, and he knew that guy, and so he just wanted to talk about that. Like I was trying to ask him stuff about metal church because he was just talking and. He just wanted to talk about Trans-Siberian Orchestra, which was a little disappointing because I was like, tell me more about Metal Church. And he's just like, well, if you got to go see. He just he turned everything. He was a good guy. I'm not trying to talk shit, but he turned every he turned all of my questions into like, no, well, what you really got to do is you got to go see Trans-Siberian Orchestra. You, you wouldn't believe the musicianship and the, the performance, the stage presence. It's like everything he said filtered back into Trans-Siberian Orchestra. Whereas I'm just like, tell me all the gritty details about Metal Church back in the day. But, you know, Western Washington Metal, like uh, another good band is uh, Sanctuary, who became, is it Nevermore? I think that's might be who they became. Sanctuary had a really good demo. There's another band, too. I'm trying to think of the name. Um, what are they called? It's a band I really like. I'm just forgetting the name right now. They were a very unknown. Serpent's Night. I love Serpent's Night. They did some demos in the 80s. One of my favorite Seattle metal bands. I played them on here. I played them on every night's a school night. Serpent's Night. But so, that, you know, there was some good 80s metal from Seattle, but it didn't really have, like, it wasn't really thought of. Just, a, you know, Queensryche got big. Everyone knows Metal Church. But by the time my sister and her friends were into that, even though they were into Metallica, like one of her friends was a little more into metal. He liked Slayer and Danzig and stuff. But they, they didn't think Queensryche was cool. Anything that could be remotely connected to hair metal was uncool to them. But their identity revolved around that, and it was this very organic process. But then that just became more and more inorganic. 
Like, I feel like my friends and I and like the people I went to school with in high school, I feel like even though we had access to the Internet, again, we were just using it to kind of expand our knowledge of what we were already into and make, you know, for me, I started making connections with other people who were into the same niche music and things like that. It played a huge role. I'm not trying to downplay the role of the Internet. I'm definitely the product of the information age, but it was still just expanding on what was already there. And a big difference I've noticed with younger people, even people who share the same interest as me, like I've ended up meeting a couple people who are in their 20s still, who are into some of the same music. And it's amazing, like how much information, how much data they have. Because like they will just go to YouTube and listen to every album and they know exactly what the essential albums are. Because that was something that was very different for me is getting into music, even with the Internet. It's like things were out of print. Things were expensive. It was hard to know like what is like you would know that a band is respected and good. But unless you had a friend or an older friend or something who could tell you, unless you had access to like some kind of interview that a band who was influenced by that gave, you didn't necessarily know what the essential albums were. So you'd get into a band, but like if you went to Sam Goody you know, or you went to Tower Records even, or just some record store, you're just going to find like whatever the in-print albums are. And you're like, oh, I want to check this band out. And you buy it and you'd be like, oh, this, this sucks. And you'd think that's what the band sounds like because you don't know that their essential albums were from years earlier and they're out of print now. You know, you just don't know that. So there's a lot of guesswork and you're spending money to do that. You know, I remember like having a tantrum, like going to, I think I went to like some record store and they had a CD by a band I was interested in, but it was a newer one or something like that. Or it was just one that I, you know, I didn't know what, which one to get. And so I got one and I went home and it was just, it wasn't what I wanted. And I had, I just had this, I had a meltdown over it because it's like you spend, you have 20 bucks to spend. You know, that was a nice thing is you could take a $20 bill and get an album, you know, and get some change back too. But if you, you had to choose wisely because it's like you spend that $20 bill and it's like you get the wrong album and you're just, you have something you hate. You have something you don't like because you don't know which one to get. But that's the beauty of it too because when you do get the right one, it's even more satisfying. It's an even better jewel. Like it wasn't all curated for you. But the difference is with some younger people I've come into contact with, like they can get on YouTube and somebody has ripped every single album a band has ever done and they know exactly which one is considered essential. And they have so much data. Like they know the entire band's discography. They know who all the band members are. They know everything about it because they've just gotten online and consumed the data. And as a result, though, their experience is fundamentally different. Like they may have just had it on in the background and there's nothing wrong with that. Like I use all that stuff, too. I use all that stuff, too. You know, I, everybody does. Everybody I know does. I have friends with the I have friends with the record rooms, a room full of records and they still use all that stuff, too. It's not like there's anything inherently wrong with it, but it's just that experience is so different to somebody who got into music, who formed an identity 
during the information age, after the information age already took over, after the digital world already took over, while they're still interested in this material thing, it's like their introduction and um, their hunt is just a Google search away, which like I have no right to really say that given that I was on the cusp where like I had the internet too when I was getting into a lot of these things. But the internet provided you with different information then, less information. So it is different. But that stuff's also not as important. You know, like I, I was at a hardcore, I wasn't at a hardcore fest, but there was a bar here in town that it's since closed, but it was owned by a guy in a metal band I don't like. And my friend, she had no interest in metal or anything, but she was a very skilled like craft bartender when that was at its peak, when everybody was really into craft drinks and all that. And so she got a job there and it was kind of a high end place at fancy drinks. It was very fancy looking the kind of place where it was like, they put a lot of money into designing it. Like it, it was kind of dark. Like it had kind of like the walls were paint, painted black, but it had like this bright glossy wood for everything. And they would have like bundles of twigs on the wall. It was like the sort of place that like internet witches wanted to hang out. Like girls who consider themselves like internet Etsy witches. It's the sort of place they would go into and be like, oh, this is my place. And uh, I was there one time because people would want to meet up there. I never liked to go there, but I would go when my friend was working and other people liked to go there. So I would go. But I was there one night and they were having some kind of hardcore fest because they had a venue in the back. And uh, this guy I knew who was, he's awesome. He's like, I think he, he was already in his 40s then. And this is like five or six, this is like six years ago, maybe five or six years ago. He was already in his 40s, probably his mid 40s then. Just this old Hesher. He had got into doom metal back in the day and was just like, this is my thing. Like the sort of guy who got into doom metal and was just, and you know, stoner rock. And he was just like, oh, this is my, this is my thing. He was actually from Bellevue. Speaking of Bellevue, he was from the same town as Queensryche. And he moved down here. But just one of those guys where it's like he got into doom and slow music at a certain point earlier on and was just like, There's, I don't need anything else. And uh, But he, uh, he, he loved drugs and he, he was like, I have some acid if you want any. And my experience with acid, it's never really worked. Like I've had people give me micro doses and it did something, but in high school, like somebody, we bought sugar cubes off this guy. This is going to be a tangent, but like in high school, like I did mushrooms and everything and DXM in high school, but acid was elusive. Like acid was just not around. You could not find acid in high school when I, when I grew up and uh, I had a friend who he was a, a video game guy. He was just like a nerdy guy into video games. Very funny. And he got really into Hunter S. Thompson, and he, and uh, we would smoke weed together. And because of his, his interest in Hunter S. Thompson, he really wanted to try psychedelics and different drugs. And so I was into that. I was I wasn't into Hunter S. Thompson, but he knew that I liked drugs and stuff. So we would hang out. And uh, his dad was a stoner, so he would steal weed from his dad so that he could smoke with me and stuff. It was cool. But it, he was trying to chase down acid and he finally found it like there was a punk girl at our school 
And she had an older boyfriend, of course, who I just have to say, he was freaking crazy. He looked like a male model. Like he looked like a blonde, this, this girl's older boyfriend. He looked like a blonde male model. And he was fucking insane. And I talked to him once about music and his favorite band was Today's the Day. If you're not familiar with that, it's this kind of, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't even know how to describe them. Kind of like, like sludgy noise rock with like screamed vocals, I guess. I don't, I don't even know what that's supposed to be. A weird band though. Like when you meet some random dude who's not like a record guy, you know, he's just some kind of like, like actually insane person who's into drugs and dates young punk girls. Like when you meet a guy like that and you're talking about music and he was just like, oh yeah, my favorite band is Today's the Day. Best drums, best, you know, and he, he could talk about it. It's just like he, like he found Today's the Day somehow and was just like, oh, this is my band. It's just really weird to think about somebody. Like you never meet somebody, at least people I know. I've never met somebody who they're just like, oh yeah, Today's the Day. That's my band. That's, that's it for me. Like he found that and he, he, it's like he wasn't even interested in moving past that. He wasn't interested in anything else. It was just today's the day. But anyway, like, so my friend through this punk girl we went to school with, he got in touch with that guy and was like, Josh is going to get us. Of course, his name was Josh. Josh is going to get me acid sugar cubes. Do you want any? And I was like, do you want to go hang out? And I was like, yeah, because like acid never came around. And he's like, well, we have to go to like two towns over. He's staying, you know, because this guy didn't live anywhere. He's, he's always staying somewhere. He's like, he's staying in these apartments behind the bowling alley, like two towns over. And my friend didn't drive. So I was like, I'll drive. And so we went there and we knock on the apartment door and we go in and Josh answers the door and he's shirtless and he's ripped. Like, that's like the thing he looks like, he looks like, like he's, he's like some weird freak of nature where he's like, he looks like a male model, like a blonde, like you, you could imagine him just being a jock or something, but he's into weird shit and he's, he's like ripped, he's shirtless and he's just covered in cuts and bruises, like just covered, like he has a black eye. And he was one of those people where, like, I, cause I, I would see him a lot during this period. He was always around. He always had a backpack on, always walking. And you would just see him. And, yeah, he, he's the type of guy where just each time you saw him, it's like there's a decent chance he'll just have a black eye or some, like, nasty cut or something. And he answers the door, and, he, and he's just, yeah, like, shirtless, ripped, with just cuts and bruises all over him. Like, not just one or two. It was like a black eye and cuts and bruises all over him. The apartment is completely dark. And there's like a guy, like an older guy. Not like old, not like an old guy, but just like a guy who's like older than we are. Sitting on the couch with just the biggest grin on his face. And, and this dude, Josh, is just like, yeah, I'm on acid right now. And I'm like, of course you are. And... He's like, my girlfriend's in the bedroom. Like, she's tripping out really bad, so don't try to talk to her. And he pulls sugar cubes out of the freezer, and he's like, don't take more than two of these at once. And we're excited because, like, one of our friend's parents was out of town, so we have a place to do it. We recruit somebody else to do it with us. And we went there, though, and we took the sugar cubes, and nothing happened. 
which of course this guy would probably sell us fake. And it's not like he would do it to be an asshole. It's just like this guy lives in a state. This guy lives. His favorite band is Today is the Day. He's always damaged physically. He dates young punk girls. You know, he's just got like all kinds of stuff going on. So of course, like he sells us some sort of fake acid or something or weak acid. I don't even think he was intentionally trying to rip us off. I just think it's like, of course, this doesn't work. But of course, like my friends, like one of my friends, the friend who bought it, like he wanted to trip so bad that he was like, I just because we all just sat around. We we're like, it's not working. We were smoking weed and stuff. I think we, you know, there might have been alcohol there, but we were just like, it's not working. We waited a few hours. We, we took one because we we're like, oh, he said not to take more than two. We took one, like waited an hour and we're like, hmm, took another, waited a little bit. Nothing's happening. And we knew that it wasn't working, but the friend who, um, the friend who bought it, like he really wanted it to work. So there was one point where he's like, I think I'm feeling something guys. He's like, I, I just looked at the wall and like my hand went through the wall. I was just like, come on, man. I know you were, I know that we were all really excited, but we're not tripping. It's one of those things. Another time, uh, you know, one of my good friends became friends with that guy, Josh, years later. And as you'd expect, he let him stay with him for a while because that guy, he's always just staying with people. Josh was always just staying with people. And uh, he was friends with the punk girl, too. And like Josh and the punk girl broke up. And my friend was over at her house and she was dating a new guy who was there. And they were just drinking beers in an apartment and there's a knock at the door late at night and they open the door and Josh is standing there with like, he, cause he had minions like street kids. And so there's a knock on the door and they open the door and Josh is there with like two of his minions. And Nick told me my buddy, Nick, who was there, he told me like, Josh is in all white. He's in white pants and a white shirt and his two minions are in all black. Like this sounds made up, but this is, it's this sort of guy. I don't, and who knows if that was even intentional. It's the sort of thing with this guy where like he was a sort of magical creature. That's the thing. Like you, like even though like we felt like we got ripped off on the acid, it's like you don't even hold it against him because it's just like he's just that type of guy. Like his favorite band is Today is the Day. You know, I, I, I could just go down the list again, but he answers, they answer the door and he's in all white. And keep in mind, he had like super blonde hair, like kind of spiked up like the style of the time. And so he's in all white. His He's like two like weird ghoulish minions in all black. And they just enter the house. Like they just walk in. The minions just start going through things. Like not, not to rob it or anything. But they're just, you know, they're just minions. And Josh just walks straight into the kitchen. And he pulls a kitchen knife out. And he just starts slashing up his arms. Like not slitting his wrist, just slashing up his arms. And remember, he was all cut up when I saw him on, when he was on acid. And then in front of her new boyfriend, the punk girl gets up, goes to the kitchen and just start animalistically making out. Just starts animalistically making out with this guy, her ex-boyfriend in front of her new boyfriend, who's just sitting on a, in a chair or on the couch, just like, what the fuck? Then she whips the dude's dick out his dicky out and starts going down on him in the kitchen 
where they can see it. And this is her new boyfriend witnessing this. And my friend is just sitting there like he's not invested. He's just friends with these people. But he was like, it was just the fucking craziest thing. And I'm like, that's probably what that guy's life is like all the time, right? His life is probably like that pretty much all the time. So, you know, that's that. But anyway, I just had to tell that story real quick. Um, But I can tell you, that guy did not use the Internet. Just everything that guy encountered was just like bouncing from one place and person to the next, just wandering. He just wandered. But, you know, (laughs) where do I even go from there? Um, You know, thinking about, uh, I guess I was thinking about just identity and uh, here I am stammering. But uh, I, I guess it was just like the way that we formed our identities did. It was still very material and organic where it was stuff you encountered you know, it was, it was stuff that you, I was talking about that guy, like the gamer guy. I don't know. I don't know what I was saying about him. Maybe just an excuse to t- talk about Josh, but like the way that that was, that's just like, that's the extreme example though, where it's like, everything was like what you were interacting with. And it was like, nobody had an identity based on something else. Like nobody had an identity, you know, based on, Oh, what I was talking about was like taking acid and yeah, I know, I know the connection where, you know, that was my sort of experience with acid is like somebody sold you acid and it just never worked. And then like, I ended up knowing this guy who was obsessed with psychedelics who would give me micro doses at parties and stuff. And that was fun. Cause I felt like, you know, I knew something was different, but it didn't, it didn't feel substantially different. But then I was, I was at this, that bar and the doom metal guy, like the old Hesher, he's just like, I have some acid. You want a tab? And I was like, you know what? It was a work night, but I was like, sure. And so he gave it to me. And I knew this guy was not going to give me bad acid. And there was a hardcore fest going on at the bar at that time. And I had just been looking around drinking. And it was like everybody there looked like they bought their outfit on Etsy. There were like a lot of girls Everybody there, you know, this is probably 2015, 2016. And like every single person there, it wasn't just that everybody looked alike, which was true at all, you know, at any hardcore show throughout, you know, back when I was like a teenager and stuff, that's how it was. But I was just looking around at this hardcore fest in 2016. And I was like, everybody looks like they got everything they own from Etsy. And it's just a horrible vibe. And so I took this tab of acid, you know, finished my drink. And I was like, I have to leave. If this acid kicks in when I'm surrounded by all these kids, like you could tell, it felt like data. Like all of these hardcore kids, like it, I just got the impression that like, this is all just data to them. They know exactly what's cool. Like the sorts of shirts they were wearing. Cause like you would go to shows in like, you know, 20, over 20 years ago and it's like, you're going to see somebody in a bouncing souls shirt at a hardcore show. You're going to see somebody who like, doesn't know which patches are cool. And so you're going to see like this. And that was me too. When I got into punk for a brief time, it's like, you would have this mishmash of patches, you know, this mishmash of stuff. And nobody told you exactly what was cool because you really just had to take it as it came. And even if you did a little research, it's not like you could even find all of the stuff you wanted. 
So your identity was sort of like this collage of cool and uncool stuff. You might be into a cool band, but haven't you, you've never heard their best album. But like looking around at all these hardcore kids at this fest, it was just every single patch and every, and I, I'm not even into hardcore, but like I still know. I still like know what's what. And it was like every single patch, every single shirt, it was like the perfect thing. Like there, they were nobody was like uh, nobody was gambling. Nobody was taking a chance. It was like they got all of the data on what was cool, what was essential, and how to put that together. And I took this tab of acid, and I was like, I have to leave. You know, I have to leave. Because if this kicks in while I'm seeing the, this is going to be a bad trip. If I'm one in a bar, in a crowded bar, while there's a hardcore fest going on. Number two, it's like if I have to look at these people while I'm tripping, it's probably not good. So I left and then I ended up having a full on trip. There's one tab of acid. I completely tripped. And I, uh, I went home and I just listened to like as I was, it hadn't quite kicked in yet. And the sun was setting and right before I got home, I looked up at the clouds and the blue sky, and I was like, oh, I knew right then. I knew right then that I was in for it. Not a not a crazy trip, not a wild trip where I was going to lose my mind or lose myself, but I just looked up at the, the clouds and the blue sky about a block away from my house. It had probably been an hour, maybe at the most, since I took the tab, and I just thought, oh, Something's happening. And I just, I went home and I, I put on a bunch of metal records, like Eastern European metal records, like some of my all time favorites. I wasn't going to gamble. And I remember looking at the turntable and of course, like the spin was really strange. Like it seemed to be spinning almost in slow motion, like an extremely slow spin. It didn't seem real. And it was great. I just, I, once it kicked in, I just sat on my bed and laid back and felt the music entirely inside of me. It was a really phenomenal experience and just listened to record after record and it just felt it entering me. And I, my girlfriend at the time, I told her that I'd took, taken acid and so like she had sent me a couple messages and the last message I sent her before I went radio silent just said, Russia, just Russia. Like quote, Russia, period, just Russia, quote end quote, because I, I just started thinking about Russia in this really abstract sense where like the whole rest of the night, I just like, I would close my eyes and I would see these very vivid, desolate Soviet airstrips. And I was thinking about the word Russia. And this is, this is August, 2016. I know exactly when it was. And like a week earlier or two weeks earlier, I had been hospitalized for a severe bee sting. And I didn't know that I was even allergic. So it had been this crazy couple of weeks. And uh, I was just sitting there and I was just visualizing Russia. And I love that text message, Russia, just Russia. And then it reached a point where like I was laying on my bed where like everything had shut down. You know, and I, and I was seeing tracers and that kind of thing, and I was laying on my bed, and then there reached a point where I could no longer think. 
you know, I was some, I was conscious. I was not asleep, but I was just laying in bed with no music. I, I, I just, I could no longer think, but the word Russia was still in my head, but it, it, I'd completely disassociated with it. And it was just phonetic. And this is like right before the whole, like Russians hacked the election thing. And when I told my friend about it a few months later, he was like, Oh, the Russians hacked you which I thought was funny. That's what it felt like, though. It felt like I was getting like a download from Russia. And I had all the lights off in my house, and the only light was like a blinking LED light, which added to some kind of Soviet feeling, like that was some sort of like piece of communication equipment, which it is. And uh, I ended up like trying to eat grilled chicken. And on the plastic covering it, like I looked down while I was eating it, and uh, I saw like a film, you know, how it's like if you cover chicken, it's like there's going to be like a little film and condensation, like a little chicken film, as we call it, chicken film. And I saw the film of the chicken and the condensation. And I was just like, this is disgusting. And then a little while later, I tried to eat this piece of like gourmet hazelnut chocolate somebody had given me. And it tasted incredible. Like being on acid, eating this hazelnut chocolate I was like this tastes incredible but it like coated my throat and it felt like I could like I I could feel this chocolate coating all the way down my throat into my chest and stomach the whole rest of the night and I couldn't shake it and I was drinking a lot of liquid like I at that time I was drinking a lot of these like Hanson's natural sodas and I woke up the next morning and there were like eight, like half drinking sodas. Like I kept going to the fridge and opening a new one and just setting it somewhere. And so I woke up the next morning and there was just a, a ton of those. And then I had to go to work and I didn't sleep. Like there was a couple hours there where I was just laying in bed, my mind completely blank, but I didn't sleep. And I went into work and I got there before everybody else. And I was functional. Like I wasn't tripping still. But I was still off, you know, I was still not normal. And then I went in and I uh, got on my computer and I was looking at my emails and somebody had sent me an email about something, about a project. And I was just like, this is nonsense. Like I was looking at the sorts of things people say in work emails and I was like, oh, they're just trying to work. You know, they're just they're just saying this because they want to feel like they want to get their participation points kind of feeling where it was like, they don't, this is completely unnecessary. This is insane. And then I heard other people come in. Like, fortunately I had some time to myself to kind of drink coffee and I, I was fine. Like it didn't affect my ability to work that day or anything, but those first people, I heard them come in the door and I could hear them in the hallway And I knew that there was still something going on with me because their voices were echoing. Like it wasn't the hallway that was echoing. Their voices just sounded very like there was something off about their voices. But it was good because, you know, it was a trip. It was the only time that I feel like I've had an actual authentic acid trip where I wasn't waiting for something to happen, where I wasn't just micro dosing and being like, am I tripping or am I not tripping? You know, it it was just a full on trip that lasted all night. Really a crazy experience. Russia, just Russia.
But anyway, what got me going on that was just the way that, like, I've noticed that younger generations, even people who are into music, into these similar kind of niche interests, just the way that they seem to collect data. They know a lot. And they know what's considered canonical. They know what's considered essential. They know, like, which album to listen to. And they've heard them all. They've clicked YouTube full album and found that band's entire discography and listened to it in a sitting or had it on in the background. Not that they don't care. I'm not saying anything about like, I'm not calling them false. I'm just saying it's a different experience. And as a result, that identity isn't even as important. And what you're seeing now with kids is that, you know, they have identities based entirely on the digital world. You know, they play Minecraft. They grew up with memes. If they wear T-shirts and merchandise that reflects their interests, it's often something like some game they play with other people online. It's, it's, a me- it's related to a meme, or at least it was for a while you would see that. And so it's just a different world. You know, young people are substantially different, and they don't really care about music. They do. It's not, it's not like people don't listen to music, but when I see new music that comes out and I don't know much about it, so I'm probably out of my depth here, but when I see it, like it, it does seem like it's entirely created with an iPhone and that's kind of an old man thing. Like it, it just seems like it was made with an iPhone, but it probably was like, it seems like most new music that I encounter seems like it's like Instagram and SoundCloud had a baby and that's probably exactly what it is. And the music, like the instrumentals and everything, they sound like they could have been generated in an app. And you, you can probably do that. Like I've seen that people have like little like sequencers and beat machines, you know, on their on their phones. It's like it could all be created on a phone. And I'm, you know, I'm not even in a position to say whether that's good or bad, but it doesn't seem like people are invested in it as much. It doesn't seem like young people are forming their identities based around these organic interests like they once did. It seems like it's based on something else and they might be into video games and all that, but then it's like they need something else. And, you know, I think that explains some of this preoccupation with gender. I think they're finding identities in different ways. Like, yeah, like a, like a kid who, who becomes a Malgoth in 1999 might be like, this is who I am. This is who I really am. But that's just something that reflects their interests or what they want their interests to be. Now we're seeing where like young, young people who really go all in on an identity are trying to kind of dismantle like some sort of what they think is some sort of socio-political structure and their identities are very political and they it's it's become very esoteric like if you've seen the way that young people talk about gender you know and and the number of kids who identify as non-binary and transgender now are huge it defies all statistical probability and as people have discovered there's been books that have been written about this recently that are considered controversial but it's communicated socially where they're finding that groups of young girls who are all friends, a bunch of them will become non-binary or transgender. A bunch of them will take on these new pronouns. 
you know, where that's how they're forming these identities now. As these older forms of culture become irrelevant, their identities are largely based on, you know, like defying their biological roots, defying what they think society expects of of them as a boy or a girl. And just among the people that I know in Olympia, and I don't know that many people, but in one social circle, I know multiple families that now have a transgender kid. And, and in one family, they, there's one of the parents is transgender, and so is one of their kids. And doesn't that defy all statistical probability, the idea that this is a very rare feeling that some people have, that they are born in the wrong body? You know, doesn't that defy all that? Like... That in one social circle, you have multiple transgender kids, you have a family, a biological family with multiple transgender people, a parent and a child. I mean, just in the old drinking circle that I used to hang out in, two guys in the last couple of years have become gender fluid, where they're now a woman part-time and a man part-time. You know, you could make the argument that like, oh, they've they gravitated toward the same circles because they felt that way inside and they're more comfortable with these people, which is why they've since become this. I mean, a childhood friend, uh, one of my best childhood friends actually is a woman now. I haven't spoken with this person in many years, but I found out earlier this year that he became a woman. He was married with a wife and kid. But he was always a guy who was kind of the last to hop on a trend. And I hate to say that. I hate to assume anything about him because I don't know what his story is. I don't know what the story is now. It it took me by complete surprise, and I still haven't reconciled it in my brain. And having talked to other childhood friends, none of us have. Even more liberal friends that I have have not been able to reconcile this. The only thing that I remember or the only thing that I know is that He was always the guy, the last guy to get the haircut. He never really had a firm sense of identity. Like, he was pretty mainstream. Like, he played sports. He had a lot of friends. You know, he was always kind of just in the middle of the pack. But he was the guy who was, like, the last person to get the haircut. The last person to be into this thing. And when he turned 18, he tried to get me to draw him a... He was, he was one of the first people our age to turn 18. And he asked me, he's like, will you draw me a Grim Reaper pointing? Which is completely unlike him. Like, this is not a kid. He was not into anything dark. He was not, you know, it's like a biker tattoo. That's like a prison tattoo. He was not into anything dark or weird. He was just a normal kid. But when he turned 18, he really wanted to get a tattoo probably for the same reasons that I begged my mom to sign off on me getting one when I was 16. And she said, no, wait till you're 18. And I turned 18 and I was like, oh yeah, I don't even want a tattoo. But I think because he turned 18 before everybody else, I think he really wanted to be the guy with the tattoo, which I totally get. It's an identity. But he asked me when he turned 18, he was like, will you draw me a grim reaper pointing? I'm going to put it on my upper arm. And I was like, really? Like you want that? And I was like, I'll, I'll draw that. And at that time, I would have drawn something really shitty. Like it would have the perspective because he wanted it to be like perspective where the finger is like pointing at you, the viewer. And I was just like, huh, like you want that, huh? I'll draw it for you. 
this that's kind of incredible I, i'm kind of i'm impressed that you want that but it sounded kind of crazy to me and then about a week went by and he comes in to class and he goes oh i won't need that tattoo because i already got one and he lifts up his sleeve and he got the sublime sun two sublime references in one episode but he lifts up his sleeve and he got the sublime sun like the sublime logo and i was like holy shit because that was the most popular band among my class. Like when I was a senior in high school, all the normal kids were obsessed with Sublime. So it's like he just got like a tattoo of something that all of his peers were into. And that was, you know, and I'm not even saying this to disparage the kid. Because he was a really fun kid, you know, and you know I had a lot of good time with him. I'm not trying to say anything. But he, he was one of those people who tended to latch on to the trend right before it died. Like if everybody got a new haircut, he was getting it at the tail end. And you could kind of predict when a trend was on its way out based on when he did something. I was still connected to him on social media up until a few years ago. And there was that trend where like every single guy was like shaving the sides of his head and having this kind of like pompadour or, or it would be like slicked back on top or a pompadour. Everybody knows that haircut guys with beards. Like when, when guys were like, Oh, if, I'm all about my beard, dude. When guys started growing their beards long and drink and getting really into like craft brew and stuff like that. Every guy got that haircut where like the sides of the head are like shaved and it's almost like a fade that goes up and then it's this pompadour or it's slicked back. It was the popular haircut for like three or four years. He got that haircut like way late. And when I saw that he had it, I was like, oh, that haircut's officially done. But I found out he's a woman now. And, you know, I'm not saying that's part of a trend. I'm not making any assumptions. But it, my point is, is that he was always kind of on a quest for identity and he never really found his own identity, even though he had one. Like, he was a fun kid. You could joke around. You could go on adventures with him when we were young. It's not like, you know, it's not like he was an empty person. But, it, like, it seemed like he was always looking for, like, in terms of the way that he decorated himself. It seemed like he was always looking to his peers for a way to define himself. And he didn't need to. Like, he was great just being who he was, like a soccer player. But it seemed like he was always like looking for something else. And I found out he was a woman and it just blew my mind. But we're seeing this, you know, he I know that he went he worked for a tech company in a very liberal city. You know, I don't want to make any assumptions and I, I feel like I'm already doing too much of that. I don't want to be disrespectful because, you know, maybe at some point we'll talk. Maybe at some point there will be a connection. I don't know if he heard this, he'd probably think I'm hateful. But I'm just saying, I'm, I'm observing all this. I live in an area where this is extremely common. Like, I go to the grocery store now, and there is a significant chance that at least one of the employees and one of the customers is going to be trans. And I, I'm not exaggerating. That's not hyperbole. I go there, and there is a very strong chance that that will be the case. And you can see this with uh, kids today. You know, it's it, it's been documented that this is just going on kids in the same way that they used to like become goth oh i'm a skater i'm a jock i'm this or that it seems like as they've entered this digital world and so much of that is socio-political so much of that is just taking the nature of reality and fracturing it and dissecting it and getting more and more detached from organic material reality 
their identities, because there's still a need for teenagers to take on these identities. But, you know, it's become so far out. It's far out. And I'm, I'm not even trying to judge it because I don't, I don't, I believe in liberty. I believe in people doing what they want to do. But it's strange. It's strange to see all this. And I, I became familiar. I heard about like, like some Minecraft superstar. He's like a kid who's like a, a Minecraft superstar. And trust me, I don't pay attention to these things. But once in a while, I'll hear about somebody and it's just it's too phenomenal for me to like ignore it. I'm just going to read from this kid's Wikipedia page or it's a it's a fandom.com page. So it's kind of like a Wikipedia page. And just the way that everyone talks about things. It's like his name is Ranboo. His, his online name is Ranboo. And it's like Ranboo was born in the United States on November 2nd, 2003. He lives in the San Francisco Bay Area, as confirmed by one of his main Discord admins and Twitch moderators. After he posted a picture of the Twitch headquarters, er, on, <laughs> on June 3rd, 2021, he graduated from high school. On camera, Rambu wears a black and white mask, sunglasses, and previously gloves. He does this as part of his online persona, and also to protect his privacy. He plans on potentially doing a full face reveal at 5 million subscribers, but this will depend on whether he is comfortable enough to do so when and if he reaches the milestone. Just a second here. Make sure this is still working. Um, In July 2021, he opened up about his struggle with severe facial dysmorphia, a mental health condition affecting a person's perception of their face and causing distress, saying that it is the main reason for covering his face and that he would not be able to edit his videos without doing so. This means he will continue to wear his mask and glasses even after the reveals. He has he also requested that the fans only use pictures of him with the mask and glasses for their profile pictures. So I guess fans like just use his photo as their own profile picture, but he's saying please only use photos of me and my mask because I have severe facial dysmorphia. Uh, On November 26, 2021, at the end of his stream for the anniversary of the first National Ranbu Day, he pulled down his glasses and I revealed. I, (laughs) he I revealed. E-Y-E revealed. An I reveal. So it sounds like kids are just like very intrigued by this mysterious Minecraft gamer to the point where like they really want to see his face. But he's saying, I have severe facial dysmorphia. And so he's hyping up. He's saying he will reveal his face if he gets five million subscribers. And then as a little a a little what we call a little teaser, he pulled down his sunglasses and I revealed he revealed his eyes. This is insane. Rambu created his channel on January 30th, 2020. He uploaded his first video on August 13th, 2020, a Sky Wars gameplay video titled, I Decided to Play Sky Wars. It was a nightmare. Just under a month later, on September 11th, 2020, Rambu began streaming on Twitch. So, like, they're documenting, like, when someone made their account and which game they first played and, and the day they first streamed on Twitch. It's like... This is like history, but it's just somebody like going to their YouTube page or going to their Twitch page and documenting 
when they first did something, when they first like logged in, he logged in for the first time. And what's crazy too, is this guy's insanely popular. Like if you look at his videos online, he has like four and 5 million views. But like, I I was reading this and I was like, he started doing this like a year ago. So in the, in a year, this guy's become like one of the most popular internet figures with young people, with kids. It's just insane how quickly this stuff happens. And it said, Ranboo quickly gained traction by also posting on TikTok. And from this was able to reach 200 YouTube subscribers on his first day of posting content. A few days after he started streaming, on September 25th, he was raided by Punz, P-U-N-Z, a guy named Punz, with 5,000 raiders. Punz's raid led Ranboo to gain even more of a following. And over time, he was able to talk to other well-known Minecraft streamers like Eret and Nihachu. Nihachu. He later experienced massive growth on November 27, 2020, when he told his stream chat that he would run for president of Lemanberg, a nation on the Dream SMP. That's like... Uh, without even being on the server. So Dream Dream SMP is like a Minecraft server. He was raided by PH1LZA and Fundy, two popular streamers on the Dream SMP during this stream, and Dream invited him to join the server. Ranboo was able to reach 1 million YouTube subscribers in January 2021, and within the next few months became one of the most popular creators on the SMP. Ranboo was invited to join the Dream SMP on November 27, 2020. During his second day on the server, Ranboo helped Tommy Innit burn George's house, <laughs> an event that led to Tommy's exile from his home nation of Lemanberg. This event forced Ranboo into the server's story, and he began working on his character later that evening. Ranboo plays an Enderman hybrid character who suffers from memory loss. For most of his time on the server, Ranboo's character plot was focused on the Enderwalk state, a state that is similar to sleepwalking, where he acts more Enderman-like. Incredible. This is all, do- like, they document by the day, like, on such and such day, he got this many subscribers. On such and such day in Minecraft history, he burned George's house. Poor George. Ranboo's lore streams are some of the most popular on the SMP, often reaching over 100,000 live viewers due to the writing of his character and his accompanying acting. His character's lore is known for being some of the angstiest on the server, as well as its association with the song Fallen Down from Undertale. Not sure what Undertale is, maybe a game. Think about that. He has 100,000 people watching him play Minecraft live. 100,000 people are watching him live. That's like more than that. That's more people than a football stadium. On January 11th, 2021, Ranboo announced the creation of the Ranboo live channel, which he planned on using to upload his Twitch VODs twice a week. Despite this, he has not yet uploaded to the channel. On August 18th, 2021, he renamed the channel to Ranboo Plays Stuff and made a community post explaining the rename. It's like a presidential address. He made a community post addressing the, that he changed the name of his channel that he hasn't used. 
People document this. I mean, excuse me, but like the level of autism it would take to like document all this. On February 16th, 2021, Ranbu found a feature allowing him to mass email all of his Twitch subscribers and subsequently created a sub goal promising to send an email. Holy shit, this is crazy. He discovered a feature. He found a feature allowing him to mass email his subscribers and subsequently created a sub goal promising to send an email. This caused a huge influx of subscribers who wanted to receive the email and led Ranbu to gain over 10,000 new subscribers throughout the rest of the stream, making him the third most subscribed Twitch streamer at the time. After this, Rainbow, Ranbu decided to host a subathon stream on February 20th with the goal of becoming the most subscribed streamer on the site with all of the proceeds from the stream going towards an American LGBTQ plus charity called the Trevor Project. Over the 10-hour th- charity stream, Rambu was given incredible support, far surpassing his original goal of number one. So he, he's, more, he's more than number one. Gaining 44,500 new subscribers and reaching a total of 100,000, he broke several Twitch records having a hype train hit almost 60,000%. I don't understand. He broke several Twitch records, having a hype train hit almost 60,000%, becoming one of only three streamers to hit 100K subscribers and becoming the second most subscribed streamer at the time. He was also gifted large amounts of subscribers from several other creators on the Dream SMP, including Dream who gifted a total of 1,000. The stream even managed to cause glitches across Twitch's website. So it sounds like if you're a popular Minecraft player, you can give subscribers to another person as a gift. They're like, uh, it's like feudal. It's like a feudal society. It's like giving serfs to another lord. You can actually, it says you can gift subscribers of your own to another Minecraft player. That seems like something that the subscribers would have to consent to. How do you just give subscribers to somebody else? In total, he raised over 100,000 USD for the Trevor Project and later received thanks from the charity on Twitter. Let's see here. On August 21st, 2021, Ranbu did a second charity subathon stream, this time for Charity Water. Prior to the stream, he announced that he would be covering the... This is boring. Just saying the same thing. It's just the same as before, just for some other charity. The rest of this isn't boring. For several months after joining the SMP, Ranbu planned to meet up with Tubbo, a fellow creator on the Dream SMP who he quickly became close friends with in the United Kingdom. On June 26, 2021, once travel regulations allowed for it, Ranbu flew to the UK and appeared in Tubbo's stream that same day. He then stayed in the country for five months and met up with many UK creators before having to fly back to the US. He left the UK on November 5th, 2021 and, pl- and plans to return to the UK and potentially move to Brighton in the future. During his trip, he met up with Tommy Innit, Wilbur Soot, Filza, 
Nikki Niachu, Fundy, Jack Manifold TV, Lovejoy, Five Up, George Not Found, Justin Minx, Amesy, Bilzo, and Badlinu. Although he only posted and was recorded in content with Tubbo, Tommy Innit, Fundy, George Not Found, Filza, Jack Manifold TV, Ash Kabosu, Amesy, Bilzo, and Wilbur Soot. Insane. Having previously expressed interest in the horror genre, Ranboo was inspired to create his own horror miniseries in late July 2021 after watching The Walton Files. The project is titled Generation Loss, a reference to his use of 80s and 90s recording equipment in producing authentic analog horror audio and visual effects. It will be a combination of cartoon animation and live-action filming with as little post-production editing as possible. He will be creating both the animation and music himself as he plans to learn how to use a variety of programs for this project. Probably a phone, right? The first series will be titled The Lost Field Incident Number 1. The project's channel hit 100k subscribers within a day of being created. Talking about his merchandise, which... On August 29th, Ranbu, I hope you're finding this interesting. Uh, on August 29th, Ranbu announced the release date of his first merchandise collection, Ranbu Fashion, posting a ridiculously fancy trailer for it on Twitter. The trailer video that he posted for the collection was deliberately overcomplicated and also included the wrong launch date on purpose to increase the amount of people talking about it. Interesting marketing. On September 5th, 2021, the collection was released, and he did a cooking stream to celebrate. When the website launched, the amount of traffic to the site caused the website to break, and the e-commerce site software Shopify crashed. Subsequently, the, sh the terms Shopify and Add to Beg started trending on Twitter due to fans trying to report the issue. The issue was resolved after about two hours of waiting, and the merch drop was extended by several days due to the delay. Interesting how it's like they, it's like tons of people tried to buy his merch, and it caused like the server to crash for the merch site, and somebody like documented that. Like this person documented that. Let's see, they're talking about like a Minecraft championship. I know I'm reading it all here, but. He's part of these competitions, as you would expect, Minecraft competitions. A common tradition among MCC participants is to change their Minecraft skin to have an outfit with the colors of their team, and these skins are usually created by community artists. Rambo, Ranbu, it's hard to say his name, Ranbu has used a community-made team skin every time he has participated, but he has also gone one step further and dressed up in real life as well. He currently owns a pink suit, red suit, and a yellow vest due to having been in those teams so far, as well as a cyan-colored Squid Game Halloween costume for MCC 18. He also painted his nails red on stream the day before MCC 16. Imagine explaining this to your grandpa. So, uh... On August 13th, 2021, Twitter artist TK Tortoisewa created a 3D model VTuber based on their design of Ranbo's, Ranbo's Minecraft skin and Dream SMP character. Ranbo later liked this tweet 
and announced that he would have a surprise for his MCC 16 stream that no other MCC player had done before. Fans began speculating that the VTuber model he had previously liked would be used, noting the, that he had not just used face that he, noting that he had not used face cam during the previous MCC as his usual mask glasses and gloves would need constant readjustment and obstruct his vision and movement during competitive gameplay. He started his stream using face cam, wearing a red suit to match his team, but his surprise was unfortunately spoiled by Wilbur, who asked if he was already using his VTuber. Despite this, no upset was caused, and Rambu soon switched to the VTuber model, who also was wearing a red suit. For MCC-17, the model returned with a yellow suit and a surprise banana suit that matched his chosen Minecraft skin for the event. He has also used the model for streams outside of MCC. Nothing like a surprise banana suit in Minecraft. Trivium. His favorite color is royal blue. His favorite blah blah blah... Tubbo and Tommy in it on multiple occasions and with varying levels of seriousness have suggested that Ranboo's first name is Mark. However, Ranboo has explicitly refused to confirm or deny that this is his name. He is six foot six tall. According to Wilbur, he is potentially six foot seven. I looked up pictures of him and he is freakishly tall. I can confirm. He talks and occasionally walks in his sleep. On November 26, 2020, he declared the 26th day of each month as National Ranbu Day, as he thought Thanksgiving was a little too boring and wanted a holiday for himself. He was added to the Dream SMP the day after the first National Ranbu Day. He became a Twitch partner on November 18, 2020. He got a custom YouTube URL for his YouTube channel on September 14th, 2020, and was verified on November 9th, 2020. He obtained YouTube rank on the Hypepixel Minecraft server on October 20th, 2020. He has been playing Minecraft for around nine years. A poll during one stream revealed that 80 percent here we go. This is, this is why I wanted to read this. It was all for this point. A poll during one stream revealed 83% of his viewers to be LGBT+. It has become a running joke for transgender fans to ask him to share, quote, the gender, quote, since there has been an overwhelming number of fans getting gender envy, the feeling of wanting to be like someone gender-wise or wanting to have someone's gender expression. And uh, it says uh, fans getting gender envy from him. So this is all, this is what I'm talking about right here. This is what blew my mind more than, like, that's all insane. That people have gone through and documented, like, every single date and time that he, like, logs into an account. The day that he signed up for this. It's, it's crazy. I'm not even, you know, it's beyond me. Like, what I'm describing is beyond me. I have no judgment. I have no criticism. It is completely beyond me. But this part I found so interesting that a poll during one stream revealed 83% of his viewers to be LGBT+. And remember, he has like 100,000 people who watch his live streams. So even if this wasn't 100,000, we're talking about a huge group of kids. 
and they polled them and 83% of these huge live stream audiences are LGBT plus. It defies statistical probability, right? But this is what people are talking about. But that's one thing. We know that's big. And like maybe you could argue like, oh, maybe just all the gay kids gravitate toward him. Maybe all the LGBT plus kids gravitate toward him. But uh, 83%, that's crazy. Um, But the thing about the running joke for transgender fans to ask him to share the gender. Since fans are getting gender envy from him and want to be like him gender-wise. That tells you that, that there's a social component to this. Where they want him to reveal his gender. Even though he's a man, like he's a boy. Like he's clearly a boy. He talks like a boy. He looks like a boy. He seems to identify as a boy. But because he hasn't said anything about it, he has all of these like transgender fans asking him to reveal his gender because they're getting gender envy from him and they want to know what his gender is because they have they want to they want to identify the same way as him it sounds like. I've I've read this multiple times because this is all new to me. Like, there's a catchphrase, which is, share the gender. I'm not even making this up. Kids are saying to this streamer, like, share the... Transgender fans are saying, share the gender. Identify how you... Like, share your your gender identity. Because they're feeling gender envy, because they like him so much. And they want to identify the same way he does. That's what this is saying. That's just Unbelievable. And it fits everything that like these books that have been written out, like the Abigail Schreier book and everything. It fits what they're saying where this is like being communicated socially. Yeah, there there might be kids who feel like they were born in the wrong body. But there is something far, far larger going on. And just I just have to read this again. They want him to share, quote, the gender, quote, because they're getting gender envy. And they want to be like him gender-wise. So they want him to tell him, they want, they want him to tell them what he is gender-wise because they want to be that too. That's so bizarre. I mean, I don't even feel like reading the rest of it. I mean, it's just beyond me. You know, I am a dinosaur at this point. I am a complete dinosaur. And, you know, it's just incredible that this guy was like new to live streaming a year ago. Now he has like 5 million kids watching him. He has 100,000 people at a time watching him live. And they're all just like, tell us your gender, share your gender, because we want to be that too. It, the world has moved in, into strange areas. It has moved into strange, strange areas. Remember just like getting into a band because you want like an upperclassman's approval? <laughs> you know, remember like being excited that an upperclassman complimented your band shirt? Remember being excited about like telling someone you went to a concert 
This is so strange. This is what I'm getting at. And I didn't even know about all this. I only had the most superficial superficial view into what was going on because I try not to be preoccupied with this. I do believe in personal liberty. I do believe in dressing how you want. But it's become so coercive. And the thing is, is like a lot of these kids who are saying, we want Ranbu to reveal his gender because we are experiencing gender envy and we want to know what he identifies as so that we can identify as that too. Those kids who are thinking that are the same ones who will turn around and be like, if you don't acknowledge that, you want me dead. If you don't acknowledge that, you hate me. It's like, I don't hate you. I find this incredibly strange, kid. But, uh, oh man, like, where do you go from there? It just feels like a spiral. The spiral gets tighter and tighter. And you see how quickly this happened. This is five years. And not just five years, but like probably the last two years that this has really escalated. And I don't know what role Coronavi has played. I don't know what role political turmoil has played. I don't know what role the constant fear, the lack of interest in music, you know, sports, the things that kids used to kind of revolve around, the sort of hobbies that kids were into for decades. I don't know how much this has to do with that falling by the wayside, them being immersed and having so much information available, so much data, and not experiencing things, not developing an organic identity based on your friends and based on things you come into contact with in the flesh, but developing an identity based on data. I think this is what you end up with. I think you end up with these fractals. Speaking of LSD, I think you end up with these uh, fractals. And I just wonder where you even go from here, because it, it has to go somewhere. This isn't the end. I mean, it might be the end of something, but it's like life has to keep going in different directions. Life has to keep mutating. But where does it go from here? Because it's esoteric. This is a form of esotericism. And, you know, I hate to even comment on it, but like the kids coming up with newer and newer pronouns, because some years back, like I said, all of this stuff hit Olympia before it hit other places. And some years back, I worked with a girl who came to work and she identified as like a Z and Zo thing. Like uh, her pronouns were that Z and Zo or Zer, whatever. I don't even know it. It's hard to know. You know, it's hard to know what that is. It's hard to remember it. And it became this controversy because nobody ever told the office. Nobody ever told the office that this person, this new worker, used like Zer. And then it became this controversy, and we had to have a um, we had we had to bring in a uh, like we had to go to a sensitivity training. The whole office had to go to a sensitivity training because. Nobody had told anybody that this person goes by these new Z pronouns. But because nobody was doing that, people just said she because they didn't know. Nobody said it. Nobody said it. It was never announced. It was never communicated. But because like people didn't know better, 
we had to attend this sensitivity training. And it was a middle-aged woman, like a middle-aged liberal woman who headed the sensitivity training that we hired. But none of her material covered this. It covered race. It covered men and women, sexual harassment, all of the, the sort of sensitivity training you would have expected for decades. But that stuff gets outdated so quickly now. And so everyone wanted to talk about this pronoun thing. And even the super liberal Democrat guy who worked there, we started talking about pronouns. And keep in mind, this is years ago. He was like, you know, he was like, I don't think we should just be going up to anybody and everybody asking their pronouns because there was an ex-military guy who worked with us. Really good guy, libertarian. I liked him a lot. I like him a lot. He's a good guy. He, he saw combat. He, he was a tank he he uh, he was in a tank in Iraq, and his friends died and everything. He sh- I went to his house once, and he he had a tank round in his office, and he took me into his office and he goes, "Check this out." And it was a big tank round. It looked like a bullet, but it was huge. It looked like it looked like a bullet that a giant would load a, a giant's gun with. But this this liberal kind of Democrat guy. He raised the point. He was like, I don't know. You know, I don't feel like we should just be going up to anybody and everybody and asking their pronouns. Because if, if I went up to the ex-military guy and I said, what are your pronouns? I feel like he's going to take it as an insult. And I laughed because it's like, yeah, you know, you go up to like a man's man and you're like, what are your pronouns? Kind of feels like you're being like, you gay, you gay. But it was just really it was a strange discussion because all of this was in nobody really knew about this stuff. Somebody started working there who used these new alternative pronouns and it was not communicated to us because I can tell you everybody there would have done whatever's respectful. Everybody there would have made an effort to be respectful. Nobody there was trying to, you know, cause a scene or challenge anybody, but it was never even stated like there was this assumption that we should know, even though it was never told to us. And I see these videos sometimes of, of teenagers who have come up with even like even like the, the Zur and Z one that everybody talks about. That's even just old now. People are coming up with new ones all the time. And that's not a joke. That's not just something that like conservative pundits say. They really are coming up with new ones all the time. And you, you hear them talk about it. And I, det- I detach myself from it. I just I try to think like this is what kids This is how kids are expressing themselves now. This is what kids believe in now is kind of what I say to myself. But I listen to it and they, it's esoteric. Like when I remove myself and I just treat this exactly, like I just try to hear it exactly for what it is, it's extremely esoteric. And that's kind of how I felt reading that trivia about Ranbu a second ago where his transgender fans who seem to make up a huge amount of his followers, they repeatedly joke around for him to reveal the gender because they're experiencing gender envy and want to identify the same way he does. Imagine explaining that to somebody even two years ago. Imagine explaining that to your grandpa or your grandma. And you could say that times change and all that, but something else is going on here. 
And you know, and if it was just teenagers being like, this is who I am, dad, that'd be one thing. But you see where they will, if you don't go along with this stuff, if you don't completely legitimize this, or if you even just talk about it the way I'm talking about it, which is just like, isn't this strange? What do you think about this? They will say like, you want to kill me. When you say things like that, you're going to get me killed. Because that has been built into their heads, like the hyperbole that this is violence has been built into their heads that if you don't just adopt this, if you don't go along with this trend, and it is a trend, you're going to get me killed, man. You're going to, your words are going to enable the worst possible outcome. Your words are going to get us killed. Where do you go with that? And it's mutating before our very eyes. They have their own little culture. And it's going on in these places where there's no other point of reference. And they think that other points of reference, they think everything else that came before this is hateful and oppressive and discriminatory and is going to get them killed. And that everyone wants them to get killed if they don't understand what gender envy is and why you would watch a famous Minecraft star and want to know the gender so that you can identify the same way he does. But they're operating in this little insular place where they're carving out these identities. And as teenagers do, they compete. You know, after so many people have identified as Z and Zer, you have to change it to something else. You have to take it one step further. You have to become more esoteric. You have to carve out your own unique identity even further. You know, and, and you used to see that with teenagers and bands where it's like, oh, everybody else is listening to this band. So I've got to start digging deeper. I got to find the next jewel. They're looking for a jewel. They're looking to make themselves a jewel. They're looking, their identity is their interest. They've gone inward. They've been exposed to all of this data. They're part of the information age. They've, they've been exposed to just this endless sea of data. And they've been, they've been, uh, it, it's been drilled into them that everything else is bad or designed to like, oppress them or limit them in some way to kill them. And I think many of these kids do believe that if you're allowed to challenge this, that that enables bigots to just go out hunting them. And I don't think they're, they're not getting any other feedback. And we can see where government is now enabling this, encouraging it in some cases it's out of control. You know, it really is out of control. I'm glad I don't have a kid. I'm glad that I'm not invested in this in any way because I can just observe it. But to not feel like there's something profoundly strange going on, 
that goes beyond somebody feeling like they were born in a body that they didn't they don't belong in or or feeling like gender roles constrain them i mean it's gone so far beyond that and they are living in these digital realms like what i read might be the future what i read might be the direction things are going and you think about kids being locked down where they're just even further immersed in this like they didn't see each other for a year kids weren't at school being around each other at most they were going to class in very poorly managed zoom calls and their main social interaction may have been simply watching this mysterious live streamer and just interacting with each other like and dissecting gender finding new jewels finding new identities within that it's mutated the ideas have just continued to mutate and the data we have and the amount the amount of friction between that data it's so fundamentally different from anything i ever experienced growing up it's not as simple as oh the kids are into the new thing like oh when i was when i grew up when i was in high school in the 1950s uh, we got into rock and roll i guess i guess these kids who are getting into grunge now it's just kind of the new rock and roll what well, it is but it used to be easier to think that way about this stuff where it's like yeah you know i got into rock and roll or I, I was a hippie i was a hippie in the late 60s and you know my son he he's this thing called a goth but you know kids got to get into things and you know he's just expressing himself He's into the music of his time, and you know it's just it's it's like rock and roll was. It's it's like the '60s were for us. You know that used to be the kind of perception of this, where like even if you didn't like what your kids were doing, even if you didn't understand what teenagers were doing, you didn't relate to it, you didn't keep track of it, you kind of understood that they were still following the same patterns and processes that we always have since the teenage revolution. And maybe this is a new teenage revolution. Like in the same way that the 1950s were a teenage revolution where teens were driving around, going to the diner, hanging out. They weren't just going from being kids to adults like they did for previous in previous generations. You know, the teenage revolution, there were probably old people then who were like, you know, what are they doing? What are the what's this teenage revolution? But still, like since the teenage revolution, we've kind of understood that each generation has its own hobbies and interests, and some of that's technological, some of that's just things continuing to evolve. They have their own slang. Old people don't understand it. Some old people hate it. Some old people are like, the kids are just doing their thing. Some older people want to adopt it themselves to stay hip. But this is so far beyond that. This is so far beyond that. And to end this episode, I'm going to reveal the gender. Because I know that if you listen to every night to school night, I know what you're thinking. I, I, I haven't revealed, I haven't done, I, I haven't done an eye reveal. I've never done an eye reveal. And if I get to, if I get to 10 subscribers, I'm going to do a face reveal. You're going to see my face. And then if I get, 20 subscribers you know i'm gonna i'm gonna let you know how i identify you know i'm gonna let you know my gender identity 
because I know that you listeners are experiencing gender envy. And you want to know what my gender is so that you can identify as that too. Insane. Like, I mean, this is so insane. Maybe this will all work out. But I'm a dinosaur. I'm a dinosaur. And I don't think that I would have any concern about this. I think I would understand that this is just a product of kids being immersed in a world of data, a digital world of data. Except that like this, you have government and schools and health professionals encouraging this, enabling it. And not that I think they should come down on the kids and be like, you can't do that. But they've legitimized this way of thinking in a way that is just, I don't see where it goes from here. And it's going to take a long time. Like, like, what is adulthood going to be like? Like, what is adulthood going to be like for these kids? I don't even know if there's going to be one. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free.